with me, please. Philippians chapter 2. We continue our study through Paul's epistle to the church at Philippi. Philippians chapter 2, we'll begin our reading this morning in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we again pause to thank you for your goodness. We come before you as a people that hopefully understand our desperate need of our Savior that is given to us in Christ. And as we consider the humility of our Lord Jesus, as He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even that of the cross, Lord, as He bore the shame, as He took our sin, and as You ransomed uh, Him as the atonement for our sin, Lord, we are grateful that Your wrath has been satisfied in Him and that we can stand before You this morning as a people that though unworthy, yet nonetheless redeemed by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we rejoice in this truth, and I pray that the Spirit of God would use the Word of God in every heart, in every life of those who have gathered here in this place, and as well all those who may hear in the future. Lord, we pray that the Word of God may have its perfect work according to the power of the Spirit of God who dwells and lives within us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and be seated. When we began our study of the second chapter of Paul's epistle to the Philippians, I explained to you the importance of verses 5 through 11, which which we have have, uh, read this passage this morning. We have made our way to this point. And this passage of Scripture is referred to as the Carmen Christi. And it's Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, literally our text. I've referred to this many times thus far. And the Carmen Christi means him to Christ or him of Christ. And the truth of Paul's exhortation leading us up to this point in verse 5 and following, in verses 1 through 4 specifically, which we have read for and have been studying for some weeks now, all these truths are hinged on us possessing the mind of Christ, as Paul has declared in verse 5 when he says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul further expounded on what the mind of Christ looked like as demonstrated through the humility of Jesus and his submission to the Father's purpose in being God's atoning sacrifice for mankind. In verses 6 through 8, which we have as, have as well read this morning, let's look again. We read verse 5, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Now Paul explains. Notice as well, it's interesting, in the English grammar is a colon after verse, at the end of verse 5. And a colon uh, is used in English grammar for the intent and purpose of explaining the following statements are explanatory of that which is stated in the previous statement prior to the colon. And so what's being said here is, let this mind be you which was also in Christ Jesus, and then he explains what this mind is. And then he goes on in verse 6 and says, who, Christ, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery 
to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Last week, we examined the portion of Paul's exhortation to the Philippian believers to consider others in verses 3 and 4, leading us into verse 5. He says in verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now, Paul began commanding the Philippian believers here in verse 3 to let nothing be done. Now, in this statement, as we saw last week, Paul is do nothing in the following manner or do nothing with the following motives. And that's the statement, let, let nothing be done. He is actually saying it's not a passive statement. It may appear to be somewhat passive in, this, in our translation. However, it's not. He is not saying, oh, just don't allow. No, he's saying do not. He's saying do not do anything with this motive or following manner. And then he says, we, first, we are to do nothing through strife. And the noun strife here means self-ambition. So strife also, as I mentioned, can be translated contention or contentious. And second, Paul said, do nothing through vainglory. The noun vainglory means empty conceit. And last week we saw that there are two implications within this statement that nothing is to be done in vain conceit or empty conceit in vainglory. And we saw first that we are to do all things intentionally and purposefully. In other words, if we're not going to do things in empty conceit, then we must be intentional and purposeful about that which we do. And so Paul is making this statement known. And he says in Romans 12, 10 through 16, he gives us an example of this. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another, not slothful in business, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind. Here it is again, because Paul's already called them to be like-minded, and now he's saying that, and to be of the same mind, then he says that we are to have the mind of Christ. So in the previous verses, he's already dealt with this, and in verse 15 of Romans 12, Paul says, I'm sorry, verse 16 of Romans 12, be of the same mind one toward another, mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate, be not wise in your own conceits. And so I I showed you a few weeks back how that when Paul says that we are to be like-minded and we are to have the same mind, what Paul is actually saying, and we see this consistent throughout Scripture, when there's a mention of like-mindedness or of the same mind, it's not simply a generalized statement in which is being which Paul is stating, or other writers are stating, that we are to be in agreement with one another. I think too often we kind of view like-mindedness as though he's just speaking of being in agreement, but that's not what he's saying here. In, in these situations and, and circumstances in which Paul or other writers speak of like-mindedness, more often than not, it is related to our view of ourselves and a view, our view of others. And so he's saying we are all had, uh, to have the same attitude and understanding concerning ourselves and how we view others. And all this ties together as well in the Carmen Christi because Paul is saying that Christ humbled himself. He is God. He thought it not Robert he would be equal with God, and yet he humbled himself unto death, and not death alone, but unto the death of the cross, which was of great shame. Remember, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And so the fact of the matter is he took the sin debt. He took the sin payment upon himself. God's wrath poured out upon him, which is not only a physical death, but literally wrath of God upon himself on our behalf. So Christ truly humbled himself. Now, in viewing himself, 
He thought it not robbery to equal with God. He knew who he was. He was not confused about who he was. He is God in the flesh, the very Son of God. He knew that. But yet, knowing who he was, he still humbled himself to that degree. And so when Paul or other writers speak of like-mindedness in the Word of God, it's interesting that it is, again, more often than not, in relation to having the same mind, not about being in agreement about things, but rather understanding that we all are to be humble, viewing ourselves in humility, and preferring others before ourselves, as Christ has not only set the example, obviously, but as he did so in bringing redemption to us. And so if we have received this redemption, here's what's really being stated. If we have received this redemption, which came through the humility of our Lord Jesus Christ, then this redemption should also produce humility within our lives and that we are viewing ourselves as we ought and therefore viewing others as we should as well. Now let me say this as I said a few weeks back. It's interesting to know that our our problem really is usually not so much in attempting to view others with honor or dignity or with value. The, the problem is we view ourselves with too much honor and dignity and value. So it's not, the issue doesn't begin with, oh, I don't see others the way I should. No, it's we don't see ourselves as we should see ourselves, remembering that we are all partakers of this grace if we've been redeemed. We are all partakers of the mercy and love of God in Christ if we've been redeemed. And that in the family of God, in the body of Christ, There is no spiritual hierarchy present. There's not one who's above another. In fact, let me say it to you like this. Not one of us who've been redeemed have received more of the love of God in Christ than the other. Not one of us who have been redeemed has received more of the grace of God than another. And you say, wait, but my sin was great. Yeah, but whose isn't? And the whole point being that we are recipients of this grace, mercy, and love of God in Christ. And therefore, we are all same All in the same need have received the same grace, therefore we should be equally grateful and thankful for that which we have received. So we are to view ourselves in humility and therefore then view others in in preferring them above ourselves. Second, we saw not only that we are to do things intentionally and purposefully, but we also are to do all things as unto the Lord. In Colossians 3, 23 and 24, this is what's implied in the statement when Paul says to not do things through empty conceit or through the spirit of empty conceit or, or attitude. We are to do all things as unto the Lord. Paul wrote in Colossians 3, 23 and 24, and whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord, uh, the Lord Christ. So here Paul is stating that We serve not men, but we serve Christ. Even in serving men, we are to serve the Lord in serving others. We are to remember where we are, who we are, and who we've been made to be in Christ, and therefore serve Him as it is demonstrated to others. Paul further contrasted in verses 3 and 4 what was not to be done by that which was to be done. He had said, do nothing, let nothing be done through through selfish ambition, through uh, empty conceit. But then he says, but, here's the contrasting conjunction, but, in contrast to... In lowliness of mind. Now, the phrase lowliness of mind is translated from one Greek word, which means, interestingly enough, humility. And Galatians 3, 13 and 14, Paul wrote, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written. I referenced this a moment ago. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing or so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through faith or through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Then Paul went on to say, let each esteem other better than themselves. So he is saying preferring one another, which means 
to esteem more highly. For one to prefer another means that one must humble himself. Then verse 4, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now this is a command for the Philippian believers, as we saw last week, to not live according to their own interests, but to consider the interests of others. So here he's saying, putting yourselves aside, look to others. Now remember something, this is not one believer being told this while the other is not. This is the like-mindedness. We are all to have this view. We are each and every one to put our interest aside for the interests of others, believers in Christ specifically, we are all to minister one to another. Again, the church, the, the purpose of the church as multiplied times in Scripture it's defined is that we come together for the sake, the body of Christ is gathering, the church, for the purpose of edification. And that means if we are going to edify one another, we have to put our interests aside, allow the Spirit of God in humility, allow the Spirit of God to minister through us one to another. And again, if each of us have this mindset, being like-minded, the mind of Christ as demonstrated through the sacrificial uh, uh, life of Christ and the uh, substitutionary death of Christ, if we are to all have this mind of Christ, then no one within the body of Christ will go unministered unto because we all will receive ministering because each of us are viewing ourselves as we ought while preferring one another as Christ has exemplified and as his spirit is now living and working through us for the purpose of the building up of the body. So although these first four verses lead us into this portion of Scripture referred to as the Carmen Christi or the hymn to or of Christ, as I previously stated, the truth remains that it is this portion of the chapter, verses 5 through 11, upon which the four, first four verses of this chapter are hinged. So in other words, Christ has not only set the example for us in how we are to consider ourselves and how we are to consider others, but more importantly, He is God's provision for us in that He enables us to live in humility and in submission to the Father through the presence of His Spirit and His strength. So, yes, Christ has set the example, but never forget this. Jesus is much more than an example. Though He has set the example, many times people view Jesus, oh, He's the example for us, we should do as He did. Listen, you can't do as He did without understanding He is the provision God has made for you that he live his life through you. So it's not simply we are following an example. No, we are following the Savior, meaning his life is being lived in us with his mind, his spirit, his mindset, his attitude now predominant within our lives, preeminent within our lives. And so we must remember that. The more we reflect upon Christ, the more we reflect upon his humility, the more we reflect upon his sacrifice to the Father, the more adoration we have for Him, the more we will realize the importance and necessity of our submission to Him and to His truth. The more you focus on you, the more self-centered you will just become. The more you focus on others, the more self-righteous you will become. (laughs) But the more you focus on Christ, the more submitted you will become. Because as you look to Him in His submission and humility, and we understand what He has done, who He is, and what He has done in light of who He is, considering who we are, then we have a desire to truly worship Him, submit to Him. We see that He is worthy of our submission. Additionally, it's only in recognizing the worth of Christ that we will genuinely 
genuinely worship Him because it is then we acknowledge that He alone is worthy of our adoration, of our submission in our lives. As we understand this truth concerning Jesus, who He is and all He has done, we then begin to realize the importance of Paul's hymn to Christ. In other words, it is the Scripture that turns our attention to the beauty of the person and work of our Lord Jesus. Last week, I pointed your attention to Paul's statement concerning our responsibility to follow after Christ, having his mind regarding how we serve and are to minister to others. He says in chapter 15 of Romans, verses 1 through 3, Paul wrote, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Then verse 3, notice what Paul says, For even Christ pleased not himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell upon me. So let's begin our examination of Paul's hymn to Christ with all of these truths, verses 1 through 4, leading us to verse 5, understanding that verses 1 through 4 hinge on the truth of verse 5 and all that follows thereafter. Paul says again, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So Paul begins this reflection on Christ with the exhortation for us to have this same mind or to possess the same attitude as did the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's charge in this verse is direct. All genuine believers possess the Spirit of Christ, as Paul declared in his epistle of Romans. And furthermore, those who possess the Spirit of Christ will live according to the Spirit of Christ. In other words, those who possess the Spirit of Christ possess the mind of Christ. And according to Paul's statements in Romans, one will either possess the mind of Christ or possess and act according to the carnal mind or the mind that is given over to the sinful nature of the flesh. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 8, 5-9. through 9. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Notice what he says in verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. The carnal mind is, is, it views God as his enemy. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But in verse 9, there's a qualifier here. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ... He is none of his. Now notice, this is a strong statement that Paul makes in verse 9. Two truths here that are absolute, very direct, and definitive. Paul says, first, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be the Spirit of God dwell in you. So he's saying, if God's Spirit truly resides in you, then you are not living according to the mind that is given over to the sinful nature of the flesh, but you are living according to the Spirit. And then he goes on to say, more so, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So now he's saying, if one does not possess the Spirit of Christ, then he does not belong to Christ, and therefore he live according to the flesh, but those who are living according to the flesh do not live according to the Spirit because they have not the Spirit. He is none, therefore he's none, of the, none of those are the children of God. And so there are absolute statements Paul is making here. Now while Paul explained that having the mind of Christ is part of what it means to possess the Spirit of God, just as one must submit to the Spirit of God on a continual basis, 
So also one must be given to the mind of Christ or the attitude of Christ. In other words, although this is part of what it means to be born again without question, it is also part of the sanctification we receive as a believer, or it is something that we are to continue to learn of Christ as we grow in him and continue to reflect upon Jesus and knowing him. In Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Now listen to the next statement he makes. Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. That's an interesting statement. Jesus says, learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart. Ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now isn't it interesting directly connected to the statement, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. You have the meekness of Christ, you have the humility of Christ, and he's saying, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. He shall find rest in your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So Jesus in Scripture commands us to learn of him, which as well could be stated to learn from him, but not only from him, to learn of him. It's one thing to learn from someone. It's another to learn of them in this, in this respect. Um, when you look at those two prepositions, of would be considered that which is possessive. From is not necessarily the same case. And so we understand when he says, learn of me, there is a possessive uh, preposition that is being used here compared to that of from. Now, we do learn from him, but we learn of him because we are his and he is ours, and we are in him and he is in us and therefore we are learning of him as we are possessed uh, of his spirit the spirit of god dwelling in us and so we recognize then that it's not just learning about him or not just learning from him though that is true but it's learning learning of him the scriptures further clarify how or what we are to learn of christ specifically in relation to our attitude and service to others john 13 13 through 15 jesus said ye call me master and lord and ye say well for so i am If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Washing another's feet was an act of humility. It was an act of, even could be an act of affection and service towards another. And Jesus is not constituting here another church ordinance. And we know that to be true just by simple fact of the matter that there's no reference to such practice in the New Testament. And we know as well, this is even prior to the birthing of the church in reality. These are his disciples. But rather, the Lord is teaching here a lesson of humility and service. If he, as creator and Lord, the one they called master, notice what he says, you call me master, you call me Lord, and you do so well because I am. But then he says, but if yet if I am willing to humble myself in one of the most lowly forms of service to you in kneeling before you and washing your feet, then you are to do the same. This is an act of humility. It's an act of of even affection in this case. So the Lord humbled himself in this act of service, and he says you are to do the same. In 1 John 2, 4 through 6, We read, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, John wrote, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith, he abideth in him, ought himself also to walk, even as he walked. 
Here again, we see the example of Christ being the supreme example. And as if we are truly of him, then our lives should look as his because we have his mind, we possess his spirit. So it, just as it is natural for the flesh to serve itself and its sinful desires, so as a believer in Jesus Christ, it is just as spiritually natural for the follower of Christ to walk as Christ walked, to live in the righteousness of Jesus, to live in the holiness of Jesus, as Christ dwells and lives in us. In other words, let me ask you this question. Let me just simplify this for you. Why do people sin? It's because of a sin nature, but let's even make it a little more personal. It's because of the sin nature that they want to sin. So it's not only they are bound to sin because of the sin nature, but the sin nature then produces a desire within them to desire to sin. Hey, you're not foreign to this. Y'all look at me like y'all aren't guilty. You're guilty too, and you know it. <laughs> and so there is this sinful nature... What, what uh, we're told in James, that God tempts no man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So what's the problem here? Is sin the real problem? Well, yeah, we can blame sin, yes, but the real issue is not the sin. The real issue is the desire for the sin. It's the sinful lust and desire within us. And so, would you not agree with me as the fallen sons and daughters of Adam? Because we are a marred image now, being marred by sin, image of God, but yet marred by sin. Would you not agree with me that sin comes very naturally to us? It's very natural to us. And I'll go even further to say this. This sinful flesh in which we live, it likes sin. It even desires sin, right? So this is natural. But if we have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us, there is this, as Paul says in Galatians again, the, lust, or the flesh lusteth against the Spirit in Galatians 5. The flesh lusteth against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh, so they are contrary the one to the other, so you cannot do the things that you would. So Paul here is saying that the flesh is lusting against the Spirit. Remember what that means. When we think of lusting against the Spirit, or the, the Spirit... Uh, the flesh is lusting against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. What we must remember is when the term that Paul uses there in saying the flesh lusteth against the spirit, it literally is stating that the flesh desires to claim possession over that to which it has no rightful claim. So what is being said here, the flesh desires to take control. The flesh here is not talking about your skin and bones the flesh in this context is talking about your fleshly sinful nature. And it's saying your fleshly sinful nature desires to make claim on your body to which it has no rightful claim. Why? Well, Galatians, or in 1 Corinthians, Paul makes it clear that, um, what? No, you're not. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in both your body and your spirit, which are God's. Wait a minute. In your body and your spirit. He doesn't say your flesh, in your body. Here he's talking now about flesh and blood. He's saying your body belongs to God, not to you in sinful nature and sinful flesh. But the flesh, the sinful nature of mankind that is inherently now passed on through Adam's sin in the garden, now we have a desire for sin. And we sin 
In the flesh, I'm talking about this fleshly nature still desires sin. That's why, there's a, that's why there's a conflict going on in Galatians 5 and Romans 7. That's this conflict, that there is this constant war taking place within the life of the believer because we live in a body that has not been redeemed, and we still possess a sinful nature within this body that has not been redeemed, but yet we have redemption in Jesus Christ and the very pledge, the very token, the very evidence of this redemption we have received is the presence of the Spirit of God who dwells within us. So there is naturally then a war that is constantly taking place within our lives. That being said, if the sinful nature of man that he's inherently received of Adam desires sin, then the mind and spirit of Christ, which we have received through redemption by God the Father in Jesus Christ, desires as much so or more so holiness and righteousness. So if there's not a hunger after righteousness and desire for holiness, and I don't mean living by man's laws. Don't confuse or conflate what I am saying. I am not talking about, oh, well then if you really you desire to live like this, 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 one, two, three, four, the preacher gives you the church has set up the standards and here's how you live and therefore now this makes you holy. No. You have a desire to follow Christ. You have a desire to learn of Him. To be in the Word. To draw from His Word. To grow in the knowledge of Him who has redeemed you. Again, 1 John 2, 4-6. through 6, Let's listen to it now in light of all of that. He that saith, I know Him. So the man who says, oh, I know God, I know Christ. And keepeth not his commandments. The word keepeth here is interesting because it doesn't say doeth. It says keepeth. And keepeth, if you do a study of the word keep in relation to keeping his commandments throughout consistently through Scripture, you'll find that it is related or comes out of the, the word meaning to protect or to guard. So when he says keepeth here, he's not merely saying just do. He's saying he that keepeth not. And, and keepeth, again, I'll give you this analogy um, to help you to understand. If you think about soccer for a moment, uh, there's a goal keeper. He's called a keeper in soccer often. And the reason he is called a keeper is because he is, what is he doing to the goal? He's protecting the goal. He is guarding the goal, right? He's, he's doing his best to make certain that there's not a, a, a ball flying through past him to the goal and there's a score by the other team. And so he is protecting and guarding. Think of it like this with me as well. You only protect and you only guard things that are important to you, things that you cherish and things that you value. So when we say, when, when, when the Scripture says, if a man say, I know him and keepeth not his commandments, here's the reality of it. He's, John is actually saying here, if a man says, I know God or know Christ, and yet has no regard for the commandments of Christ. Now remember, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. We know the word of God, the judgments of God, the truth of God is precious. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. So we know that the, the word of God is valuable and treasured by those, by God himself, and also by those who know God and those whom God knows. And so when we know Him and we love Him, we then love what He loves. And we value what He values. And we cherish what He cherishes. 
And so when the, we have to understand that in this context, he that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments. In other words, what actually is being stated here, he that says, I know him, and yet has no regard for anything he has said. And we're going to see that to be true here in just a moment, further in the verse. He says, he that says, claims, I know Jesus, and yet does not love the word of God, does not love the people of God. He says this, he that says, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Truth would be Jesus, but also the word of God, written word, living word. He has no desire for truth. But, in contrast, John says, whoso keepeth his word, now keepeth, not doeth. If a man cherishes his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. It's accomplished. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. So this mind of Christ is not only given to us through the indwelling spirit, but is also taught to us by the example of our Lord. The instruction of Jesus in his word and the spirit of Jesus reminding us and giving us discernment of all that Jesus taught in his ministry and his word. In John 14, 21 through 26, Jesus said to his disciples, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them. He that loveth me. Interesting again, isn't it? He that keepeth them. We always want to throw in doeth there. We do. We want to say he that does the commandments. Now, let me explain. If you cherish his word, you follow after Christ, his word will be manifest and perfected in your life. We understand that. So I'm not saying that you can cherish his word and not live in it. I'm saying you will not live in his word unless you cherish his word. You will not live in his commandments unless you cherish his commandments. You will not love his truth unless you love him. So he goes on to say, he that keepeth them, the commandments, he that is it loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and he will manif- and will manifest myself to him. Judas saith in him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and he will co- we will come unto him and make our abode with him. What does that sound like? the indwelling Spirit of God. He's saying, and Jesus is getting ready to die at this point. He's getting ready and nearing the end of his earthly ministry, getting ready to go to the cross, John 14. He's preparing his disciples, and he says to them, those who love me, keep my words, my Father loves him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that, Verse 24 of John 14, he that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. Verse 26, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I've said unto you. What is Jesus saying here? I'm going to send the Comforter. Those who love me, they only love me. They are loved of my Father. Therefore, they love my truth, my words. And I will come, my Father and I, through the Spirit, will come and make abode within them. And the Spirit will remind and teach them all things I have said, all that I have commanded you. In his epistle to the Colossian believers, Paul further explains what this looks like for the church to have the mind of Christ and act according to the mind of Christ. Colossians 3, 12 through 15. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. 
And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Notice here again, one body, having one mind, of the same mind, of the same intent, of the same purpose. So to have the mind of Christ results in a life lived according to, or in like manner, to the life of Christ. Again, don't put the cart before the horse, don't put this in reverse and go backwards. We want to think, oh... The more I become like Jesus, the more I can know him. No. The more you know Jesus, the more your life will look like him. It's not about what you're attempting to do to accomplish something. It's about a passion and desire to know him, which results in a transformation of your life. For if it is his mind in us, then it is his life being lived in us. If it is his life being lived in us, it's because his mind is in us. We live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit of Christ dwelling within us as He guides us, teaches us, and reminds us of the truth of who Jesus is and all Jesus has instructed in His Word. Paul said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. As Paul instructed the believers in Rome, Romans 13, 14, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the thereof. The command is for us to live in the truth of God's provision for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul further explained in Colossians concerning the way the church was to interact with one another. The new man has been renewed in knowledge after the likeness of Christ. Colossians 3, 9, and 10. Lie not one to another. Notice how all of these have connections with how we are dealing with one another as believers, especially how we interact with one another, how we view one another. He says, lie not to one another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So if you are living as one who has been given the new man, putting on the new man, the Lord Jesus Christ, what he's saying is this new man is a man that is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. We are created a new creature in Christ, but we are not created a blank slate as a new creature in Christ. We are created a new creature in Christ with His Spirit and His mind. We are not just created this blank new creature that we just now have have no identity or we have not done anything or said anything or we don't have any any, uh, reference as to how our lives have purpose or meaning. No, we are created a new creature in Christ. That does not mean, again, a blank slate. It means one who's redeemed and declared righteous and justified and one whom the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed, has been given, accredited to our account. To have the mind of Christ is not a self-professed claim, but it is a selfless, sacrificial, and submitted life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and His Spirit as He uses His Word in our lives to continue to sanctify us, to conform us to His image. John 17, 17, in our Lord Jesus high priestly prayer, which is truly the Lord's Prayer. People refer to Matthew as the Lord's Prayer. That's really not the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is in John 17. It's the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Jesus gives us a model prayer in Matthew. He gives us his actual prayer in John 17. And in this prayer, he says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. In Romans, Paul explained that Paul that God is determined to conform us to the image of our Lord Jesus. Romans eight twenty nine for whom he did foreknow. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So God has given us his Spirit 
God has renewed our mind, giving us the mind of Christ. And we are commanded to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And understand the contrast of that mind with our mind. What is our mind in the flesh? To exalt ourselves, to serve ourselves, to please ourselves. This is our natural, naturally inherit, inherited sinful, fleshly mindset. Isn't it? Even if someone lives serving others, do you not understand that still no doubt there is, is a self-pleasure that they receive in doing so, even in selfless, selfless acts as it may be? The point is, the sinful nature of man wants self please serve, satisfy, gratify, exalt, climb the ladder, do the most he can do, become the most he can be in, in a selfish, self-centered, arrogant manner. In contrast to that, let this mind be in you. The very creator of the universe, the Lord of all glory, the one who gave you life, spoke all things into existence. The very one who is the Son of God, personified in the flesh, manifested in the flesh, in the fullness of time, he humbled himself. Not only did he serve, he sacrificially, substitutionarily died. The most awful, shameful of deaths. Not only because it was painful, of course, but because he was bearing the sin of the world when he himself was sinless. He who had done no wrong, he who is in perfect fellowship with the Father, took upon himself willingly in submission to the Father the very wrath of God the Father on our behalf. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, we are, uh, as Paul declared in verses 12 and 13 of this second chapter of Philippians, to work out that which God has worked in us. Just notice verses later. We've not read this yet. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Notice again, and I'm finished. For now, notice if you will, Paul says, work out. He does not say work on your salvation. He does not say work for your salvation. He does not say work toward your salvation. He says work out. How can you work out? Because God works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So live out the truth of the mind of Christ that has been given to you. And specifically, this will be manifested Consistently, we've seen this in Scripture. This will be manifested in not only how we view Christ and His Word, but how we view ourselves in relation to others. Like-mindedness is not simply agreeing on something. Like-mindedness is, like is in relation to each of us understanding and humility, humbling ourselves, recognizing that I am no more deserving of the grace and mercy and love of God than any other sinner. So in other words, it's not like, oh, I, I deserve, but they, no, I, I do not deserve. Listen, if, if I deserve grace, it's no longer grace, but it's works. It's reward given to me. I do not deserve Christ. I do not deserve salvation. I do not deserve redemption. I do not deserve grace, obviously, nor mercy. I deserve justice. But God has given grace, mercy, and his love in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ.
And if he's given that to you, he's given it to me. If you're a recipient of such grace and redemption in Christ, I am a recipient of the same grace and redemption in Christ. How could I possibly view myself any more worthy than you are? We're not. And therefore, we humble ourselves as did Christ in serving one another as we are serving Him. So let this mind be in you. And we'll look more so into what that means as we progress through this text.